Well, if we go to Mark chapter 14, in the Church Bible, that's page 1020. Mark chapter 14. And we're going to look uh, this evening at verses 27 down to verse 52. So we saw earlier on an example uh, of Christians in Iraq who are suffering. We see many other countries all over the world where Christians are suffering greatly for their faith. But in our own lives, we are all either in one of two camps really. Either we are suffering right now, or we will suffer. It happens to everybody. And in fact, as I was preparing for this, and I look through the prayer diary, and think, does this sermon have any application to the people that we're speaking to? It struck me that yes, it does, greatly. Because even amongst our members here, there are many who suffer. Many who are going through some really difficult and trying situations. And sometimes it can be easy for us to say, does God understand? Does God understand what I'm going through? Well tonight, as we look in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see that God understands more than you could ever know. We see that Jesus is the God who suffers. And as we see him, we also see how his suffering was to not just bring us salvation, but also to show us how to suffer as well. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21 says this, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So if you want to know how to go through suffering, we look nowhere else but Jesus. Jesus understands. Jesus suffered. And we'll see he suffered more than anyone could ever imagine. And the reason that this message tonight is going to be particularly tough is because as well as seeing how Jesus suffers, we see how the disciples reacted when they were faced with the trial. And as Mark uh, produces quite a stark contrast between the two, I'm sure if you're like me, you'll look at the disciples and find that far too often we react like that rather than like Christ. So I pray that we tonight speak into the suffering that many of you are going through, but also I want us to be challenged as to how we endure when this comes our way. And as we look at suffering, the first thing we see in Mark, chapter 14, is that Jesus is prepared and the disciples we're proud. All of us, as I said, are either facing trials right now or we will face trials in the future. So we should be prepared for trial and temptation. And what do we do before those trials take place? Well, Jesus shows us a little bit of what we should do in verses 27 to 31. And he begins in verse 27 
by preparing them for failure, which seems strange. He says in verse 27, if you follow along, we'll read to verse 31. You will fall away, Jesus said, for it is written, this is what we read in Zechariah, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the cock crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Jesus tells them that they are going to fall away. And he quotes from the prophet Zechariah. As the shepherd, as Jesus is struck, they all scatter. And Peter just denies it. Jesus says they are not going to show loyalty to God. But Peter says, even if all the others do, Jesus, I'll stay with you. I won't fall away. Jesus was preparing them for trials. He says you will fall away. He's preparing them for failure even. But Jesus prepares them not just for failure, but we see he prepares them for victory. Look at verse 28. After I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. You see, Jesus says that this fall isn't going to be permanent. He is going to rise again and go ahead of them. And the phrase, go ahead, can also be translated to mean to lead, like a shepherd. Jesus isn't going to remain dead, he's going to rise again and go ahead of them. So he's going to meet them. So he's saying, you're going to fall, but I'm going to rise and go ahead of you. So you're going to meet me. So they're not going to stay fallen, they're going to go back and be with Jesus. But the disciples completely miss this point. And I want us to remember something with this point. That all of our trials, all of our struggles, all of our suffering, it came to pass, it didn't come to stay. We will meet Jesus at the other side. He's gone ahead of us. Right now he's in heaven. And for those that trust in his name, we will go and be there with him. We will go and be with Jesus. He is leading us to where he is. The disciples, he was leading them to Galilee, but for us we know he's leading us to glory, to heaven. And it's so important that in our trials, we remember where the end is for us. It is heaven, isn't it? It is glory. The risen Saviour leads us to glory. So yes, there's testing and there is trials and they will come. But Jesus leads us through the other side. So be prepared for testing but be prepared for victory as well. Now whilst this is a wonderful truth that we ought to remember, how often are we like Peter? And the others, even if I fall away, or all fall away, I will not. Well, Peter shows a number of faults here. First of all, he shows ignorance of the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus has just quoted. He showed that he didn't believe Jesus. You know, Jesus said something and he says, no, that's not true. Okay? He showed immense pride and arrogance, didn't he? He does not think that this would happen to him. All the other 11 disciples, so at this point there were no doubt 10, all the others, 
are going to fall away, but they may, but not me. No way, this could never happen to me. And friends, if any of you ever think that about any sin, beware. Beware. And Jesus even reiterates the prophecy, because it's such a dangerous place to be. He reiterates it. He says, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And it's amazing, actually, to realise how quickly Jesus says Peter will fall. Because the night in, in, to these people was split into four sections. Between 6pm and 9pm was the evening. Then between 9pm and 12pm was midnight. And then from 12am to 3am was what was called the rooster crow. And then from 3am to 6am was morning. Yes, morning, before 6am. So the rooster crow, though, was the third part of the night. And when Jesus says tonight, he could, it could be before 12, I'm not quite sure on the exact time, but it certainly wouldn't have been much before or after midnight. Within hours, he's saying here. Within hours, Peter. You're saying this, but within hours, you're going to fall away. You're going to, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter then, he, he carries on, he insists emphatically, even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will never disown you. And all the others, all of the disciples, they all say the same thing. He was emphatic, he was proud, he relied on his own strength. No, Jesus, you are wrong. I will not fall away. I will stay with you. I will even die with you, Jesus. Well, we know how the story ends, don't we? We know what happened to Peter. But this passage is book-ended with emphatic denials that they will never fall away and at the end, they all fled and Jesus is on his own. And we'll see that a bit later on. So does this mean, then, that we should be the opposite of Peter and be resigned to the fact that we are going to fail? No. That is not what Jesus is saying here. We are told in the Bible that we have all that we need to overcome temptation. We are told God makes a way of escape, that we will bear it. We, unlike these disciples, actually have the Holy Spirit within us all the time. What is going on here is Jesus is teaching us that we must never think this will never happen to us. He's not saying, resign yourself to failure. He's saying, resign yourself to ever thinking that it will never happen to you. Because the moment we think that, the Bible says, pride comes before a fall. Don't ever think, ever, ever think that something will never happen to you. And the lesson is spoke well by Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Be careful you don't fall. Don't ever think that will never happen to me. Perhaps the most famous last words are those of Major General John Sedgwick, who was an important figure in the American Civil War. And he was deploying his men to face the enemy with snipers that were going for him. And his last words were, they couldn't hit an elephant from that distance. Those are his last words. And he got shot from those snipers. Be careful that you don't fall. Be careful you don't fall. Paula was telling me as I was preparing this, 
of a friend of hers who was heavily involved in the church where she used to go. And this girl ended up in a, a sexual relationship uh, with, a, with a guy. Uh, she wasn't married. Um, it, and her life ended up being a, just quite a mess. And she phoned Paula up, and what did she say? She said, can you believe that this could happen to me? And Paula said, well, that was your problem. That was your problem. You thought that this would never happen to you, and then it did. Be careful. You know, for those of us that are married, sometimes our marriages can be going really well, and we think, oh, you know, I've I've heard people say, oh, we've never had an argument. You know, be careful. Be careful. Because marriages come under stress and trial. Don't think that adultery would never happen to me. Never think that. Never think that it couldn't. Be on your guard. Be on your watch. Or even when you look at the news and you see, uh, we see gross sin. Even, among, even where Christians sin just in awful ways. And it's right that we're angry about these things because they're just they're horrible. It's right that we're disgusted, but it's not right to think that would never be me. I would never do that. Beware. Beware. If you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Never think that it could never happen to you. Well, how we actually prepare for trials and how we, uh, we, we, we need to be prepared, but we see now as we look at Jesus, how we go through trials or how Jesus goes through his trials. In verse 32, it tells us that they went to a place called Gethsemane. And the Garden of Gethsemane, the word Gethsemane means oil press. And it was the Father's purpose to press the Son for our redemption. And there are deep mysteries in the Garden that will never be fully understood. And the trial of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is more than any of us could ever really comprehend. But as we see what happens in this deepest of trials, although we would never be with Jesus in the garden and fully understand, we can watch him. And as we watch Jesus, we see that Jesus prayed and the disciples slept. Jesus prayed and the disciples slept. So Jesus knows that he's going to be pressed. He's about to bear the sin of the world. The wrath of God. And Jesus, remember, is God. He is holy. He hates sin. And he knows, because he is God, he knows what God's wrath is. And this is suffering, the like of which no one has ever known. And I want us just, before we read the passage, think about this for a moment. We need to, we'll never fully understand it, but we need to think And we need to use our minds to try and comprehend just a bit of what is going on here. So, some of us may have faced um, a kind of a trial where you know something's coming and and it's really awful. So, with Jesus, we know some of the things that are coming, okay? So, we know that his disciples are going to just flee. He knows that's coming. So, he knows they're going to betray him and... He knows Judas is going to come and, and, and we'll see in a minute he's going to kiss him and betray him in an awful way. We know, and he knows, the injustice of Pilate. He knows the fickleness of the crowds. He knows the mockery of the soldiers. He knows 
he's going to face the physical agony of the cross. He knows all of this, but that isn't even the half of what he's talking about here. Because if we knew that was coming, we would be terrified. But for Jesus, this was so much more. He was bearing the sin of the world on his shoulders. And, he's, and not only, not only uh, do, we, do we think of it as he's, he's bearing my sin, he's bearing everybody's, all of those of you here today that are saved, every guilt that you've ever had, every shame that you've ever faced, all of that is at the same time bearing down on Jesus. And to make it worse, to think about it just a little bit more, this has never happened before to Jesus. He's sinless. So when it says in the Bible that he, um, we'll see in a minute, that he was um, uh, distressed greatly, and another trans- I think the authorised version used the word astonished. And it's the, the idea is, this has never happened before. It's, it's something that's never been, this has never happened to me before. It's something new. So when Mark says he was is deeply distressed, I mean, that, it's an understatement, really. You can't, words can't describe. Every sin, every shame, every guilt, everything is, is bearing down on the Son of God. Now, this isn't to belittle anyone's suffering, but no one in history has suffered like Jesus suffers here. So when you think, does God understand? Flip it round. We will never understand the suffering that he endured. He will always understand ours. Always. We will never suffer like this. This is a sin-bearing suffering. And what does he do? Well, read with me, as you've got that, that, that in our minds, from verse... 32. Jesus says, sit here while I pray. So, he prays, doesn't he? He took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to, to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, He fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Well, before the temptation of Jesus in chapter 1 of Mark, we find him preparing by praying. When he fed 5,000, John tells us that they wanted to make him king there and then. And it, it says he went to, to pray. It was like another temptation there. And at this point of agony, where he's going to be bearing that weight, Jesus falls on his face and he prays. He prays. When he's overwhelmed to the point of death, Jesus prays. He's surrounded by grief. And when it says to the point of death, that's, that's literal, literal, the stress that he's facing. Luke describes it as like uh, sweating drops of blood. Literally, the pain was killing him at this point. And he took Peter, James and John with him. These were his closest disciples. These were the best 
that he had. And he tells them, stay and watch. Now the word watch here is used in a variety of ways in the New Testament. But the word uh, doesn't mean um, to keep an eye on me or watch out for Judas. It's, a, it's being awake spiritually, a spiritual alertness. So he, wasn't, he was asking them really to pray with him. Pray with him in his hour of need and because he's just told them they're going to fall away in their hour of need. Pray with me. Stay and watch. So he goes with them and then he goes further in on his own and he prays. And what does Jesus pray? What does Jesus pray? There's four parts here. Abba, Father. This is a name for God no one else would use at this time. Jesus uses it because he is his Father. It's a relationship. We learned when we were looking at Romans uh, chapter 5 that this is a relationship we also have. It's a relationship of a loving Heavenly Father and a Son. And this is important because when Jesus prays in his agony and in his suffering, he's not praying to some distant God who, who, who doesn't really care or isn't there. He's praying to a Father who loves him. Praying to a Father who loves him. Any good father when their son or, or daughter comes up to them and shares their suffering, the good father cares about what they're saying. And that's the relationship Jesus has and the relationship we have. It's a loving relationship with our Heavenly Father. So God, when we go to him in prayer in our suffering, he loves us. We're going to our Heavenly Father. What does he say? He says, first of all, everything is possible for you. So when we come to God, to our Father who loves us, we come to a Father where everything is possible. There's nothing God cannot do. He's able to take our suffering away. He's able to heal us. He's able to provide financially for us in amazing ways. There's nothing that God cannot do. Nothing that God cannot do. Nothing is impossible for God. So what does Jesus ask his Father who can do everything possible? He says, take this cup from me. Now think about this for a second. That's amazing, isn't it? To think Jesus is praying to his Father to take the cup from him. The cup, by the way, uh, was a, a symbol, usually, of God's wrath. And that's what it is here, God's wrath. And he's asking God, take, take your wrath from me. If, there, if it's possible, because everything is possible for you, Father, take the wrath. Do it, do it, go and do it another way. If there's another way, do that, this, this, this wrath. Because remember, Jesus knows... He knows what God's wrath is. He is God. He knows it. We talk about the wrath of God, but Jesus knows the wrath of God. He is God. You see, Jesus isn't enjoying the suffering. Jesus isn't thinking, I'm really looking forward to doing this. We know in Hebrews that it was for the joy set before him he endured the cross, but he still endured it. He didn't enjoy it, he endured it. And he asked God, is there another way? And you know, when you're suffering, there is nothing wrong at all with asking God to take it away. There's nothing wrong with asking God to do that. For Jesus, there was no other way. 
You know, if, and, and we know that's true, don't we? There's no other way of salvation. Jesus did the only way that was possible. He asked God for any other way and there wasn't another way. Jesus, we know, went to the cross. You know, if, if, if a self-help book would save us, he wouldn't have had to go. If, if doing a good deed in, for charity would save us, he wouldn't have had to go. If just turning up to church every week and attending and thinking that's great and that's enough, he wouldn't have to go. But we know he did go. He went to the cross, didn't he? But if there was another way, he said, if there's another way. And friends, there's nothing wrong with reverently praying to our Father to whom everything is possible to say, Lord, please, please take this away. And sometimes that prayer is answered with a yes. But remember, for Jesus, for God himself, in, as a man, the answer was a no. Okay? Even Jesus had an answer of no when he prayed here. So we can ask God, but remember, no is an answer. But what did Jesus say next? Because this is when I say it's reverent, we ask reverently, he says, yet not what I will, but what you will. We must submit to the fact that God may want us to go through some awful pain and through some awful situations for some sovereign purposes that we will never understand. And we have to say, your will, not mine. And that's the hardest thing to say, isn't it? It's so hard to say to God, your will be done, not my will, your will. But Jesus, who bore an unbelievable, an un- unimaginable weight of suffering, when he prayed to God to take it away and God said no, he said, your will be done, and he went to the cross. He went to the cross. We'll never fully understand what was going on here in the Godhead. I think, um, I mean, you can debate me over this, but I I think there was some kind of temptation from Satan going on here. For Jesus to, to even pray this, there must have been something going on to make him not want to do this. I don't know. But it was an unimaginable for us wait upon the Saviour. Don't ever say that he doesn't understand your suffering. He understands more than you could ever know. He suffered for us in a way we will never understand. So in your suffering, pray. Pray to your Father who loves you and to whom everything is possible. Fall on your face before him like Jesus does and beg of him for his help. And even if you think that means taking the suffering away, pray. But do so with an attitude of your will be done. Submission to God. And we'll see that after Jesus prays, even though God didn't take the cup away from him, after he prayed, we'll see him stand. After he prayed, we'll see him stand. And even when God allows us to go through great suffering when we pray, when we fall on our face before him, we can stand. And we'll see that in a moment. But let's look at the disciples. Let's look at the disciples in verses 37 to 40. He returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Simon, he said, 
to Peter. He calls him, I, I, I think he calls him Simon when he's done something wrong. I get called by my full name when I'm in trouble. He gets called Simon when he does wrong. Simon, he said to Peter, you are asleep. Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into, tempta- into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and he prayed the same thing. When he came back, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, to the, look the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Jesus was praying in his trial before the trial of the cross. The disciples were sleeping before theirs. Jesus asked them to watch just for an hour. And they couldn't even do that. We can watch TV for five hours. We can do, we, you know, but, but we can do so many things. But, but to, to just to, to watch with Jesus? Can you, can, we not, can you not even do that? Peter was just saying, I'm never going to fall away, Jesus. I'm going to die with you, Jesus. I'll be with you to the end. He's just had the, the, the Lord's Supper. He's just had a, the, the, the time with Jesus. An, an experience which we have to wait to, to heaven for. And then just a little bit later... Jesus asked him to watch and he falls asleep. He falls asleep. We can do so many things for so many hours, but can we spend just five minutes praying? We can complain about being in church for an hour, but we can spend hours and hours doing so many other things. But when when we we want to spend time with Jesus, we just think, oh, that's just, oh, I don't know about that. Friends, if we have any hope of enduring trials, don't fall asleep on Jesus beforehand. Don't come to church and be disinterested. Don't laze around in the morning and not spend any time with God, but do a hundred other things. Don't read the scriptures and then to, but not take it in. Don't get bored with Jesus. Don't have more of an interest in a million other things and not care about Jesus. Because when trials come and we've slept on the job, when we haven't spent time with Jesus, you will fall away. That will happen. It happened to the disciples and you are no different to them. You, it will happen if you do not spend time with Christ. If you are more interested in anything else but Jesus, when the trial comes, you will fall away. One of the reasons they fell away was because they slept beforehand. Another reason was they were proud, but they slept. Jesus prayed, the disciples slept. The spirit is willing, Jesus says. I won't fall away, but the flesh is weak. They slept. Oh, but the flesh is weak, isn't it, friends? My flesh is weak. I have a spirit. I can talk a good game, (laughs) but the temptation comes and my flesh is weak. It's so easy to sleep, isn't it? So easy to sleep on the job. I was reading a biography um, about a year ago of a cyclist called David Miller. And he was caught uh, taking performance-enhancing drugs. And he had a ban for a year. And for that year, he, in the biography, he just he partied and he didn't hardly ride his bike at all, did no exercise, he ate rubbish. And then he said, his, his, he had an athlete's body, and he said, you couldn't tell uh, from the outside, but when he got on the bike, he said he could hardly pedal up a hill. Because he'd spent that year just indulging himself and in no training at all. And if you're going to let things go in your life, then when you 
get on your hill, you will fall away. And I would say something else as well. If you're going to let something slip in your life, don't let it be prayer. Don't let it be prayer. Jesus prayed. He prayed. Before his trial, in his trial, he prayed. And you can stand before the trials of the world when you've knelt before God in the closet. We can stand before men in the world when we've, when we've knelt before God. Okay, we, can do, we can do this if we kneel before our Father. I've, in fact, to help you, I've got one book, and the reason I bought it to recommend, if anyone wants to borrow it, come and see me afterwards, is because it's only 48 pages long. So, it doesn't take long to read, it's called Enjoy Your Prayer Life, and it's just useful to help you if you're struggling with prayer. So there's one copy, because it's my copy, if you want to borrow it, the first person that comes can, can take it and have a look at it, and then pass it around. But it just gives some helpful things on prayer. It's good stuff. I recommend it to you. Don't let prayer slip. It's so important. Jesus, when we watch him in his suffering, Jesus prayed, the disciples slept. Anyway, let's move on, because time's ticking away. We see the impact of prayerlessness with the disciples next, though. So look at what happens when the trial came. So Peter's going to fall. He fell asleep. Look what happened when the disciples came. So verses 41 uh, to 52. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. When the trial came, we see that Jesus submitted and the disciples ran away. Jesus has wrestled in the garden that he may conquer on the cross. He's wrestled in the garden that he may conquer in the cross. And when he sees the soldiers, what does he say? Let us run away. Let us hide. Let us make ourselves invisible. Let's do a miracle. No, he says, let us go. Let us go, he says. Jesus could have stopped it all. Jesus is God. He could have stopped everything, but he said, rise, let us go. My betrayer is at hand. I am going. I am going and I am facing this trial. He submits. And I want you to notice here the change in persona of Christ. In the garden, he's broken as he bears his weight of sin. And he's on his face, pleading before his father. But look how he stands when he comes out of the closet. Look how he stands before these men. And it would have been a frightening thing, wouldn't it? Judas appearing with a crowd. And this crowd would have been Roman soldiers, and they would have had the swords, 
and the temple police with the clubs. A big crowd of people. And it kind of made me smile a little bit when I just pictured Almighty God and this big crowd with swords and clubs thinking that they could defeat him. And maybe, they, well, for a time they thought they had, didn't they? But he rose from the dead. But Jesus suffers and falls into the hands of sinners. And that's one of the paradoxes of the Gospel. If you remember, in the very first sermon in Mark, Tim said that it's a paradox of the Gospel that the the Almighty God is a suffering Messiah that suffers at the hands of sinners. And Judas comes, and we won't go too much into this, but he he, he does the kiss, the, the awful betrayal, kisses Jesus, a sign of affection, but inwardly it's a betrayal. And Jesus stands, and Jesus stays. And what do the disciples do? Those disciples that were sleeping before this came, what did they do? Well, first of all, they started cutting off people's ears. You see, they stand by Jesus when they think they can have a glorious fight. When they think, oh, this Christianity is going to be glorious, this is going to be wonderful. They stand with Jesus then and they think they can cut people's ears off. You know, be careful of misplaced zeal. That's another danger of not praying. When you go to someone and say, oh, I've got a word for you, if that word hasn't come from your closet in, the pr- in prayer beforehand, don't give it. Ask God. Or be careful um, when, you, when, you, when you jump in to try and help someone without really asking God first whether that's going to be helpful. We can cause all sorts of damage with misplaced zeal when we don't go before God first. That's the disciples here, cutting off people's ears, thinking they're helping. But how quickly, look how quickly their zeal changes. Because Jesus isn't leading a rebellion. From the disciples' action, it appears to me that if Christianity, if following Jesus was going to be a sword fight with the Romans, they were well up for it. But as soon as Jesus tells them to put the swords away and stop this, because violence never helps the cause of Christ's kingdom, when they realise that Christianity is going to be hard and gritty and difficult and requires great faith, they do a runner, don't they? You know, some people love Christianity when it's all glory and all wonderful singing and praising God and all those kind of things, but when it gets tough, that's when you see where your faith really is, isn't it? But notice the, the, control, the, the submission and the calmness and the control of Jesus as you compare. So he comes out of the garden and he says, the Son of Man must be delivered. Submission. He doesn't lash out like the disciples and cutting off people's ears. He's calm as he comes out of the garden. And notice something else too. He tells the soldiers that he's in complete control. You're only here, soldiers, because the scriptures that I wrote tell you you should be here at this time. Jesus is in complete control. He says, you could have arrested me at any other time. I was in the temple all week and you've come now. Why have you come now? Because I've written that you would be here. That's why you're here. He's in complete control. He comes out of the garden, he faces this crowd of soldiers and he's submissive to his father. He's calm and he's in complete control. He knows what he's doing. He prays before the father, he stands before the men. But what of the disciples who were asleep? Well, look at verse 50. Everyone deserted him and fled. Even if I fall away, everyone else falls away. I won't fall away, said Peter. Peter fled. 
All the other disciples said the same also. They all fled. And then we get the strange account in verses 51 and 52 of the first ever recorded streaker. See, many people think that it's Mark. We don't know. We'll find out in heaven. But it doesn't really matter. It appears um, because the, the, the linen garment was actually a bed sheet. So it appears that somebody was asleep and they wondered what was going on. They got out of bed, wrapped themselves in the sheet. But when they saw Jesus arrested, they didn't want to be seen with him. So they ran and they were so um, scared, they didn't even care that they were running around naked. Now, if it was me, I wouldn't write my name either. So it doesn't matter who it is. But the point is, Jesus is all alone. Those disciples that said they would never fall away, they all left. They all ran away. And what are you going to do when the going gets tough? Because, friends, either you're suffering now or you will suffer. It's coming. It will happen. What are you going to do? What about when suffering comes in our marriage? Are you going to stick with it? Or are you going to run? What about if God doesn't want us to be, to be married? Paula's friend that I talked about earlier, she fell into sin because she wasn't satisfied. Are you going to stick with God and submit to his will or are you going to, are you going to run into sin? Sometimes at work it can be difficult to be honest. Are you going to submit or are you going to just fall away? When suffering comes, are you going to get bitter with God or are you going to say, your will be done, Father, I'm going to submit to you? Are you going to get angry with God? Or are you going to say, God, you're in control of this, you know, you know what's going on, you're with me, you understand. Christianity is not the glamorous option. It's not the easy way. It's the hard way. It's the narrow way. It becomes gritty and it becomes hard and it takes determination to submit to the will of God. But as we do this, let us remember the one thing that the disciples completely missed. And I take you back to uh, verse 28. After I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. He rose because he died, and he died because he suffered in our place on the cross. He suffered for us, and he has risen from the dead. And any suffering that we have is always temporary. As he went ahead of the disciples, he goes ahead of you. He leads you in your suffering to glory. The disciples missed the bit about the resurrection. Don't you make the same mistake. Remember, glory, glory is to come. Don't forget. In our, in our final song, uh, before we finish, we're going to sing, Come Thy Font of Every Blessing. And as we think about what we've been saying, it, asks, it tells us to ask God to tune my heart to sing your praise. Sometimes in suffering we need God to tune our hearts, don't we, to do that. In the second verse it says, Here I raise my Ebenezer. In 1 Samuel, that Ebenezer is a rock of help. God is a help 